Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment. If you don't know me, well, hello, my name is Tess, a PhD obsessed with microbiology. I started Microbials.com and The Micro Moment to share with all of you the amazing world of microbiology and to show that everyone has a micro moment. But you actually will not be hearing too much from me today. You see, today we have something super special. I asked some of my favorite microbial communicators if they could tell me what their micro moment was. And so I compiled all of their amazing and diverse stories into this podcast episode. You'll hear about sci artists, podcasters, bloggers, entrepreneurs, a little bit of everything from all over the world. And I think it just shows that everybody can have a micro moment. So I hope you will find a little inspiration from all of these stories. And may they help you find your own micro moment. I'm your host, Tess, but I don't think I ever described my micro moment. So I'll get us started. If I had to describe my micro moment, it would be a story of love, hope, forgiveness, and adventure. John and I have been together now for nearly eight years, which is about the same time I fell in love with microbiology. We met in summer school, physics to be exact. Throughout our undergraduate careers, we took physics, biochem, ochem, and biostats, twice actually. But despite each of us having two microbiology degrees from the same two schools, UNH and UCR, we never took microbiology class together. Even though we're both in microbiology, we're on very different sides of this field. John came from the medical side, more interested in pathogens and healing, while I came from more of an ecological side, obsessed with highly dynamic interactions and positivity microbes bring to our lives. So while many of our auxiliary classes intertwined, our microbiological interests was too wide to coincide which I think just attests to how dramatically wide the net of microbiology is. Literally, nothing is untouched by microbes, including our love. We graduated undergrad one year apart. John got a job at a hospital, and I finished up school. On a whim, we traveled across the country together with nothing but an old beat-up Saturn filled with all our worldly possessions, our young love, and our desire to delve deeper into the world of microbiology. We are bound for grad school at UCR, the University of California, Riverside. John quickly became known as the guy with the microbe tattooed on his arm, and I became a strong advocate for sustainable agriculture. We worked on opposite ends of the microbiology spectrum and opposite sides of campus, but still found ways to help each other in our own individual pursuits. We've explored together, taken the long classic road trips like Route 66 and US-1, had international travel to Montreal and the UK. We saw the countryside of Scotland, but not before we saw Dolly, the first cloned sheep, and ventured to London, where our first stop had to be the Broad Street Pump. We learned together, not just academically, but socially and culturally, to make friends from around the world and traveling abroad. Eventually, we adopted a fur baby. We sat one evening in our poorly finished apartment and pondered what would be the name of our new dog. It did not take long for us to discover we both wanted something micro-related. And so our white Korean Jindo puppy now bestows the darkest and yet most delicate of names of Yersinia. And she is our little pestis. 
In the end, we've touched each other's hearts so completely, neither one of us could imagine a world without the other. And it all started with microbiology. And so, an eight-year relationship, seven major trips, six different jobs, five degrees in microbiology, four major moves, three years of engagements with two proposals, two adorable fur babies, we've become nothing more than one passionate couple striving to spread our love of microbes to the world. And so we hope you join us for the rest of the episode, where we will share the micro moment of some of the top microbial communicators in the world. Allow me to introduce to you the amazing Eliza Wolfson, a scientific illustrator who's been featured in many scientific journals and microbiology societies, including the Federation of European Microbiology, Plus Pathogens, Molecular Cell, and a number of science textbooks. She's here today to tell you a story about her auger adventures. What's my microbe moment? Well, I'll be honest, it's just agar. I love agar. Um, I just like the colour of it. It's this gorgeous golden colour in the sunlight. I love the way it smells, the kind of savoury. And then you pour it and it's kind of molten but liquid. And then there's bubbles and you get to pop them with a flame. And it sets and it's soft and it's bouncy and you streak stuff out on it. But it's you've got to be careful not to rip it. And then you can put it away overnight. And in the morning, magic! Boomph! Colonies! Fluffy ones, shiny ones, goopy ones. Oh, I think it's cool that you can then see what was invisible is now visible. So I, I really love agar. And because of that, I decided to enter the ASM agar art competition. And I thought, I should boss this. I'm a freelance scientific illustrator. I'm a microbiologist. I've got years of lab experience. And at the time, I was working in a gut pathogen lab. So we had this funky selective media. So I could grow things that would be yellow, white, or gorgeous purples. So all I needed was an idea, something to make it stand out. And I thought, let's make it 3D, literally stand out. Um, so I went to a cookware store and looked at the uh, ice lolly moulds to get an idea. All of a sudden, I saw these rocket ice lollies, and it just went, pow, yes, space. For gut pathogens, they go through all these different environments. It's always about adapting and exploring. It's inner space. Inner space! So uh, I went with that. So I bet I poured all this agar, word to the wise, I made the 3D bit with more agar in it so it wouldn't be too wobbly, but it was still pretty wobbly. And it turned out to be quite a challenge to actually paint onto the 3D agar. But that wasn't the only challenge. Once I'd drawn what I thought and hoped was smoke and flames on the side of the rocket and on the plate, I, uh, I had to incubate it. I had to keep it clean, but I also had to give them airflow so they'd be able to grow. So I had to autoclave this enormous box and take all the shelves out of the incubator and, and I'd carefully place it in. But I was pretty sure I'd nailed it and I was quite excited to see what it looked like the next day. So the next day I came in and I couldn't actually tell. In the incubator, it was all steamy. The box had steamed up, very mysterious. So I carefully carried it to the bench. Heart in my mouth, I took the box off and I saw disaster. My rocket had fallen over, splat onto the, the agar plate and the smoke and the growth was all smudged. You could see it would have looked really cool, but there was a big 
rocket-shaped smudge in it. So I picked up the rocket carefully, balanced this wobbly mass, and then tried to fix it because I didn't have time to do it again. It was This was a one-shot go. So uh, I started trying to blur the smudge and it just looked worse. It just kept looking worse. Everything I did made it look worse until eventually it looked like a Van Gogh starry night. And I, I was just like, oh, that's it. Billowy smokes. I sculpted the, the loop strokes to make them look like brush strokes. And it looked really cool. This billowing smoke at the bottom and, and smoke up the sides of the rocket. So then I was, I was happy with it. So I experimented with all sorts of lighting conditions, took a ridiculous number of pictures until eventually the rocket fell over again and decapitated itself on the edge of the Petri dish. Game over. But um, I, I excitedly entered the competition and didn't make the cut. What do we take from this? Well, okay, I didn't win. But I did really enjoy making agar art. And so if anyone wants to let me into their lab to play, uh, I'll be there in a flash. Have you ever got the feeling that something wasn't right? You knew something was wrong, even though everyone was telling you, all the doctors were telling you, it's just fine. Well, that's what this next story is about. Can you believe that it was solved with a pickle? I'll let the brilliant scientific writer, Christina Campbell, who's been featured in top-end journals such as Nature, Alive, Microbiome Times, and Science Trends, tell you her micro moment about a pickle. Hi, my name is Christina Campbell, and I am a science writer specializing in the microbiome, and I'm here to share my microbe moment. My microbe moment really happened in a time of my life when I was kind of having a hard time health-wise. I had a lot of gut symptoms. It was a busy time in my life when I was working a lot. And I, of course, had gone to see my doctor about this. And um, he kind of did a bunch of tests and said, well, you know, all the tests come back negative. So um, you're fine. And so I walked out of the office. I was kind of like, well, yeah, okay. I don't have a diagnosis, but <laughs> I know I'm not fine. But it was just that none of the things I was you know, experiencing fit into a diagnosis of something like inflammatory bowel disease, which incidentally is all through my family, irritable bowel syndrome or anything like that. I just didn't fit the categories, but I knew that I was having you know, troubling symptoms. So I tried a lot of different things, various gut health products and probiotics and very restrictive diets and just trying so hard to, you know, get rid of the symptoms. And I was also doing a bit of writing for uh, my local paper. And this was before I specialized in writing about the microbiome when I was just starting to learn about it. But I got a piece assigned to me on fermented foods. So first of all, at that time, and this was probably yeah, 10 years ago or so, I didn't even know the difference between a fermented pickle and a vinegar brined pickle. And so I learned and I, I thought, wow, this is kind of cool that um, most of the pickles that I've been eating all my life off the shelf are made of vinegar. And but there's this other kind that's like, you know, made of the sour stuff that comes when microbes, you know, attack the pickle. And I found a couple of kosher delis and other places that were selling these types of pickles and other fermented foods. And it was very niche at that time. And um, I think actually some of the places I wanted to interview 
would like slam down the phone on me because when when they heard I was writing for a local paper, they didn't want uh, the publicity because it was sort of a gray area um, in the health code as to whether they were allowed to sell these types of products with the live microbes. So anyhow, I tracked down one of these delis. I bought a jar of the kosher pickles. I kind of held it up to the light and I was like, wow, this is strange. This, um, this brine is all cloudy. It's like whitish. And I'd never seen that in a jar of pickles because of course, vinegar fermented pickles, it's, it's like a clear brine might have a greenish tint. You can see through it. So I took, um, the lid off the jar and I tried the pickle and that really was a defining moment. You know, it just tasted so different from anything I'd had before. And I think too, I was sort of primed to enjoy it because I had had such a restricted diet um, in the recent past. And when I tried it, you could kind of feel the tingle or the effervescence in the fermented food. And I just felt like this is a kind of food that I want to eat more of. And so that, you know, I did write the article. And after that, I really took it upon myself to find more fermented foods. At that time, it meant connecting with a lot of different people in town from Facebook groups and so on. Um, And this was in Vancouver. And so I, you know, started to learn more about fermenting and what you could ferment dairy as well as sort of vegetable products. And that really was the beginning of opening up this world of how microbes transform foods. And I did start to incorporate fermented foods into my diet. I did a lot of other things as well. Eventually my gut problems did resolve. So today I do not suffer from them. I don't know really what it was, um, probably just sort of broad lifestyle changes and trial and error with diet. But today, you know, I can, I'm back to eating almost whatever I want without gut issues. But, you know, I think that journey that was started with the pickle was kind of my journey of healing and and also you know opening up this new career direction because I had started to also talk to the sort of movers and shakers in the field of the microbiome and the researchers, some of the industry people that were putting their faith in one product and, and going to test it and see if it worked, um, had some efficacy. So I started to get into that and cover it in different articles. And that kind of led to this new career direction and where I find myself today, where I just uh, write exclusively about the microbiome, uh, the gut microbiome, especially. And um, yeah, and I enjoy good health. So fermented foods are very much a part of my life still. There's at least three or four types in my fridge at any one time. I love fermented foods and I love the idea that the microbes transform the foods into something new and tasty. And I'm pretty sure... I'll um, keep discovering that and and try more and more types of fermented foods. So there you have it. A pickle can change your life. Hi, everyone. This is John. And up next, we are hearing from Sean Allen, a nanoparticle slash immunology researcher and the co-host, along with his brother Nathan, of the podcast Petri Dish, which has been going strong since August of 2019. It's a science podcast covering a wide range of topics, including microbes, lab meat, animals, COVID, the immune system, and even the physics of lightsabers, delivering it in a hilarious and slightly profane way. So, let's hear how Vinegar got Sean interested in the world of microbes. Hi everyone, I'm Sean Allen from Petri Dish, and this is my microbe moment. 
Uh, I'm not totally sure the first time that I ever thought microbes were cool or anything like that. But one of the biggest ones where I kind of realized both how useful and sometimes gross they are is when I learned more about vinegar making. So vinegar, you know, super tasty. I love it. I use it to make pickled jalapenos or maybe a little bit of salad dressing or something like that. Vinegar, just like awesome in so many foods and things like sambal and stuff like that. All my spicy stuff, I love to have vinegar in it. So, uh, you know, as a big fan of vinegar, I wanted to know more about the production process including for some episodes of Petri Dish, learned that, like, you know, basically if you take alcohol or something and dilute it enough so that you can have a certain bacteria grow in it, those bacteria will turn that alcohol, the ethanol, and they'll take that and turn it into acetic acid. And that's basically the, the whole process, right? But there's, like, some ways of making vinegar where you kind of take that alcohol and you add the bacteria and you wait for months... And then there's another way to make it much, much faster with something called the mother, the mother of the vinegar. And <laughs> this was really exciting for me when I first saw a picture of the mother because it's kind of like this floppy disk that looks like it's got like the consistency of liver, like raw liver or something like that. And it's made out of cellulose from the plants, maybe left over from whatever plant source helped make the alcohol and a bunch of bacteria in there. So it's just like a, a stanky floating disc of bacteria and cellulose. And if you want to make vinegar really fast, you take this disc and maybe break it up into pieces. And then you add that into diluted alcohol. And then that'll turn that into vinegar really, really quickly. And you can actually buy vinegar out there that still has the mother in it as like chunks of bacteria stuff in it. To me, that brings together both worlds of microbes, which is how cool and awesome and useful they can be, and how just like completely disgusting they are, right? And so it's kind of that that marriage together in delicious vinegar is one of the things that I love about microbes. And I don't really buy any of the health benefits of drinking vinegar with mother, but sometimes I like to buy it just so I can see floating chunks of stuff in my vinegar. And I suggest you go out there and check it out too. Next up is Jennifer Sang, who's going to share her micro moment. Jennifer, I met on the internet. She hosts another blog called The Microbial Menagerie. It's a fantastic blog that's been going on for over five years now. It's quite special. I've worked with Jennifer in a couple of collaborations, and she truly is a fantastic science writer and a phenomenal collaborator. So I'll let her take it away and share her micro moment with you. What is my micro moment? I've been enamored with microbiology for the longest time that it's hard to define the exact occasion that I'd call my micro moment. Microbes are always at the top of my mind, and it's not hard for that to happen because microbes are everywhere. Here's one of my first memories of working with microbes. My first real encounter with microbes in the lab was in my junior year of high school when I took my first microbiology class. We mixed the growth media in the classroom, and since we didn't have an autoclave, my teacher sterilized it using a pressure cooker as we did other coursework. Still to this day, I distinctly remember my teacher picking up the giant steaming pressure cooker and running it over to the sink to cool it down. Once the auger cooled, we poured the plates 
And in the next class, we were greeted with the cooled, smooth auger surface used to grow bacteria. We were sent on our way around the school to see what we could grow on them. Since this brush with microbes, I've worked with Vibrio cholera as an undergrad, studied the Helicobacter pylori flagellum in graduate school, and worked to identify new antimicrobials with the help of robots. Fortunately, in all these experiences, I didn't have to run across the room with a steaming hot pressure cooker. Then, my relationship with microbes shifted. I pivoted to science communication and left the world of lab work, though I still very much love microbiology. It was that time, about five years ago, when I started a microbiology blog called The Microbial Menagerie as a celebration of the many ways microbes touch our lives. And I had to start with my favorite topics at the time, food microbiology and the microbiome. Now the blog has expanded to cover much more, microbes in many different environments, the lives of microbiologists, and I've even written poems about different microbes. While now I do not grow or study microbes in the lab, I still find ways to incorporate microbes into my life. Well, let's face it, we all do even if we don't realize it. In my kitchen, I've grown cultures of sourdough, yogurt, kombucha, and kefir. Recently, I began making time-lapse videos of my sourdough starter bubbling away, testing out how different combinations of flour changes how the starter grows. It's like a science experiment, I tell myself. Only you get to eat it, too. Tanin Deusch is a PhD candidate in the Rice Lab at VIB in Belgium, where she conducts microbiome research. She is also one of the four founders of the website Microbytes, a new upcoming blog that takes papers in the field of microbiology and summarizes them to make them easier and more understandable. So far, the blogs are translated in English, French, and Dutch and are a great read. But now, Tanin will be telling us about her favorite microbe fact and inspired food. Hey there, my name is Tanine Daryush. I'm an American-Belgian and a PhD candidate in the Rice Lab of Molecular Microbiology at KU Leuven. I am one of the four co-founders of the website Microbytes. We take important and fascinating articles in the field of microbiology, breaking them down into digestible bites. We try to bring microbiology to the global sphere by translating our articles into both French and Dutch. We are hoping to expand to more languages once the word gets out. I am so glad to be on Tessa's podcast today, and I hope you enjoy hearing what I have to say. Microbes are incredibly resilient. They can go into something called a dormant phase. And a dormant phase is essentially when a microbe slows down major metabolic processes and conserves its energy so that it can wait for better conditions. And you have to understand that microbes can stay in this dormant phase for a long time. And I mean a millennia long time. I'm not kidding. A recent study in the journal Science Advances found that microbes found in the sub-seafloor sediment, so you go so many fathoms deep into the sea and you dig out a bit of dirt, and inside that seafloor sediment, there are these microbes. They have been in this dormant phase for a millennia. That is an insane thought, especially when we start to grapple with 
the limitations of life, how these organisms were able to survive on the bare minimum for a millennia. Talk about energy conservation. Isn't that crazy? So while I do envy these microbes' ability to be so metabolically efficient, I myself know that as a human being, I require a lot of food to get me through the day. Which segues into the next question, what is my favorite microbe-derived food? So my favorite microbe-inspired food is going to have to be yogurt. My dad usually made the yogurt in our house because we are Persian, so it was an important component of our dishes. So we usually eat it mixed with cucumbers, some dill, some onions, sometimes raisins and walnuts, or with garlic. It's just an important part of Persian cuisine. Now, the type of yogurt that my dad made, it's a bit like Greek yogurt in that it's thick but not too sour. It's just this delicious blend. And I can attribute it to the culture that he's been cultivating for the past 10 years. And, you know, in lactobacilli and streptococcus, they typically make up the culture within yogurt. And I don't know what specific species are in his, but that yogurt is phenomenal. You just have to give thanks to these tiny microorganisms that make up such a good, good dish. So yeah, that's my favorite microbe-inspired food. Ooh, that yogurt sounds amazing. I just love the microbite site because not only are they trying to take complex scientific journal articles and put them into a more digestible, shorter form, they're also translating into multiple languages. I don't know any other site that does it. It's so cool. Way to be inclusive. Next up, coming to us all the way from across the pond, is Dr. Rory Robinson, who hosts his own fantastic podcast called Biomes. He's shown his commitment to science communication by writing blogs for sites I'm sure you've been to, like Healthline and the Microbiome Insights blog. He's a recipient of a pretty prestigious fellowship known as Fulbright, and even gave a TEDx talk on how your brain and your gut communicate with each other. Today, he gives us his micro moment, a story of how your micro moment can save lives. Hello, my name is Dr. Ruri Robertson, and I am, would you guess, a microbiologist. I'm not sure I have one single microbe moment, but there are a few memories that I can think back over the course of my career that have brought me to where I am today in my love for microbiology and in my microbiome career. I remember first being given a magazine by my dad uh, when I was about 17 years old uh, and still deciding what I wanted to study in university. And in it, there was an amazing article uh, about a animal in the Philippines known as the Asian palm civet that eats coffee beans, uh, which it then excretes. And these uh, coffee beans, known as coffee loak coffee, are actually a, a delicacy uh, in that region of the world and have now become popular around the world. Uh, and part of the um, taste that comes with these beans is through the fermentation process that they undergo uh, as they pass through this animal. As strange as it sounds, that led me to a fascination to food and uh, how food 
affects and interacts with the body. And so I undertook a degree in human nutrition and uh, subsequently a PhD uh, in that field as well. And as I was doing that, the field of the human microbiome was exploding and becoming extremely popular. And everything that I read about seemed to turn back to the microbes with inside our gut and how they affect our health and our disease in so many ways. And I became captivated by this. And I was really interested in nutrition, particularly undernutrition, and how so many millions of children around the world were still not growing to their full potential. They were still malnourished. Uh, and in some cases, despite having sufficient food. And so I've since established a career around this, examining how the gut microbes within children in certain developing countries may contribute to poor growth uh, and poor development in general. And what I'm fascinated by and what I'm motivated by is our ability or our potential ability to tar target all the microbes within these children's intestines to help enhance their growth and uh, help enhance their health so that they can thrive just like uh, so many other children around the world. So I have a real passion for microbiology and the potential that it can have to cure disease, to prevent disease and to optimise the health of humans around the world, particularly those in settings that aren't as advantageous uh, as ours uh, in more developed countries around the world. Next, we have Noemi Mathy, a microbiologist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. She is also an artist that specialises in microbiology and puts her designs on everything from socks to water bottles to stationery. You can buy some of her stuff at Redbubble. You should check it out when you can. It's pretty cool. So, let's hear about Naomi's voyage through the world of microbiology. Let me describe you what I believe my micro-moment is. Or should I rather say, let me tell you about my ongoing adventure filled with different micro-moments. I had my first class on microbiology in my first year of bachelor and I directly fell in love with that topic. Microbes are fascinating, and even though I also love viruses and fungi, my biggest interest is, and was already at that time, towards bacteria. The bacterial topic that directly caught my attention was bacterial evolution and bacterial adaptation, and I had the chance to do my PhD thesis in that field. It is actually during my PhD that my micro-moment really started. And let me tell you that it involves art. Yes, you heard me correctly. My microbe adventure started when I combined my two passions, science and art. Okay, so let me rewind a little bit and briefly tell you how I started drawing. My mom always loved drawing. She is the one that introduced me to art and I inherited her passion. I was that lucky baby that did not know yet how to walk but could spread paint with her fingers onto big sheets of paper. As far as I remember, drawing has always been something I loved doing. Over the years, especially during my undergrad studies, I sadly felt that it was difficult to take enough time to accomplish my hobby. 
By starting a PhD, I thought that my hobby would be on hold or even come to an end. But surprisingly, it became obvious during my thesis that I had to use art to communicate my research. So I started to create some illustrations in a comic style on the topic of my thesis, which focused on how the human pathogen Vibrio cholera could evolve through the acquisition of long stretches of genomic DNA. I used these illustrations to introduce my topic of research during talks or on poster, and I quickly realized that creating scientific illustrations was what I wanted to do. There are two things that I love about the process of creating sci-art. The first one is that you have so much freedom. As a famous quote says, your limitation, it is only your imagination. Of course, I'm always trying to be as close as possible to the science in my drawings, but it still means I can add some eyes, a mouth, and other items to the bacteria I draw. The second thing that I love is the brainstorming part of how to translate a scientific message into a single image. How can I illustrate a specific machinery that takes up DNA or that sends toxins to kill other bacteria? Suddenly my bacteria start to emerge on paper with some hands catching DNA and with some bows and arrows to fight against other bacteria. I think the use of scientific illustration in scientific outreach is very powerful. And probably the best reward was that my illustrations did not only allow me to catch more easily the attention of other peers at conferences, they allowed me to explain to my family and friends what I was doing in the lab and why bacteria are so fascinating. Doing drawings on my research topic was only the beginning of my adventure. Indeed, I wanted to create more and to spend more time explaining fun facts about bacteria to both the scientific and the non-scientific community. Therefore, I decided to complete the Inktober challenge. As you probably never heard about Inktober, let me explain you briefly what it is. It was created by an artist named Jake Parker as a challenge to improve his inking skills. The concept consists of creating a drawing per day during a whole month using pen and ink as an art medium. The creator of the challenge releases a special prompt list as a guidance with one word assigned to each day of the month of October. So now you probably understand why it is called Inktober. And the final idea is to do a drawing related to the word of the day and to create a habit of drawing every single day. I did my first Inktober in 2017 and never missed a year ever since. It took my microbial moment to a new level and helped me connect with a lot of people, including other scientists and scientific communicators. At the end of the Inktober 2019, I was contacted by a great scientific writer, Sarah Wechstadt, to be part of her blog named Bacterial World. I was thrilled to have such an amazing opportunity. Sarah has started a blog at the beginning of 2019 with the purpose of explaining to people outside of academia how amazing bacteria are. Meeting her and starting a collaboration together is one of the best things that happened to me. Once or twice a month, Sarah comes up with a new scientific topic to tackle which can be linked, for example, to bacteria and their environment, or how bacteria grow, how they compete with other organisms to survive, or even how bacteria can save the planet. And from her drafts on the new chosen topic, 
We brainstormed on what the illustration could look like. Then I take my pens or my graphite tablet and I start creating. Sometimes I think about all the blog posts already published and all the illustrations created and I'm wondering if it's really happening or if it's just a dream. I'm very thankful to be a member of the bacterial world and I hope that one day I realize my dream and be able to do scientific illustrations as a living. I'd like to finish my story by telling you the last reason why I love bacteria and especially why I love doing illustrations about them. It is because I'm constantly learning. There are so many bacteria out there with names I never heard of or with superpowers I have no idea they could possibly have. It is always such a wonder to discover new things about these tiny organisms. And similarly, it is always a pleasure to share a picture about their new tricks. I hope you enjoyed hearing about my microbial adventure And I would also like to give a big thanks to Microbeagle for having me in this podcast. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, we are coming to the end. We have two more micro moments to share with you today, and we hope you've enjoyed the show so far. This one is really quite fun and special. Our next group was found quite accidentally, but I'm so grateful I found them. You see, in my other job, as a postdoc, I was having a problem with a program. So I decided to email the creators. I was surprised when he actually emailed me back. So many times people don't answer. I was double surprised when Andrew noticed I had a podcast and he told me about his podcast too. It's all about microbial bioinformatics and it really is brilliant. I've learned so much from them in such a short time definitely check out their podcast. They have interviews, reviews of programs, and quite a few podcasts revolving around COVID-19. Finding their podcast was such a happy accident. I hope you are hyped for their micro moment. I'll let them take it away. Hello, this is Andrew, Lee, and Abiel from the Microbe Info Podcast, and we're going to tell you about our microbe moment. Okay, so lads, what is your favorite microbe? That's a hard one. There's so many to pick from. Does it have to be a pathogen? I'm going to say no, and I'm going to go with Thermus aquaticus as my favorite microbe. That is an extremophile that produces TAC, and we use that in PCR almost all the time. And without PCR, I don't have a job. <laughs> so thanks, Thermus aquaticus. <laughs> and and is it, what's an extremophile? Like, is that some kind of racist? No, it's not like a, yeah, it's not a political extremist or anything like that. It's a, it's a microbe that lives in an extreme environment. So Thermus aquaticus lives in, in hydrothermal vents, kind of places we wouldn't go. Cool. As you can tell, I'm not a microbiologist. I'm just a, a lowly computer scientist who's uh, fallen into this, this field. But Lee, maybe you know a bit more. So what's your favorite microbe? I like to go with Neisseria. Gonorrhea? <laughs> Any of the Neisseria, actually. So it's a whole genus of microbes, of bacteria. I like that they can just like soak up DNA from other Neisseria, like whenever they feel like it. It's kind of interesting and they recombine like all the time and they're just kind of a fun study. And maybe I'm just a little bit biased. That's just where I started off in public health. I think everyone remembers their first microbe. Yeah, I did a bit of E. coli blasting. That was kind of my first introduction to it. I didn't even know what E. coli was back then, you know? Wow. 
Well, Andrew, have you ever had like someone say like blah 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 this bacteria and you're like, whoa, I'd have no I had no idea that it even existed. All the time people come up to me and say, Oh yeah, did you hear about this? You know, it's like in the top three pathogens, you know, on food. And it's like, really? I've never even heard of it. I don't even know how to pronounce it, you know, it's it's a bit crazy. But you know, there's so many of them out there, like you only hear about the deadly ones, you know, that really cause uh, high mortality, but you don't hear about the ones that cause, you know, a, a dicky tummy or, or things like that. Those are, are less important. I think some microbes have slightly better marketing uh, budgets than others, really. <laughs> like Shigella? I, I'd hate yeah, to Shigella. <laughs> don't get in Shigella's way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just E. coli, isn't it? You know, with a bit of a plasmid. <laughs> Is it even worthy of a name on its own? Not really. I mean, it's just, it's more or less there for, because, well, we'd have to change all of the, the monograms. It's just not worth it. Taxonomy, yeah, the oldest argument in history. If it ain't broke, why fix it? Okay, so what's the coolest fact you know about microbes, Lee? One of the coolest things about listeria is that people are starting to use its tendency to infect people intracellularly. And so over the last 10 or so years, kind of under the radar almost, some pharma companies are sticking cancer genes on them, like a mesothelioma cancer gene, let it infect and then present the mesothelioma gene and actually have a sort of vaccine against cancer. So that's one of my favorite things about microbes right now. Wow, that's kind of cool. I think for me, one of the favorite things about microbes is they make all of my favorite foods. I couldn't have any of them without microbes. We, we all know the obvious ones like, yeah, you need yeast for bread, you need it for beer, and you need, you need lactobacillus for yogurt and all of that. But did you know you needed microbes to make chocolate? What? Yeah, chocolate is a, is a partially fermented product. So yeah, if you, if you didn't have like a, a bit of yeast and a, bit, a couple of bacterial species in there to, to help Chug, chug the cocoa along, couldn't have chocolate. Oh, man. Well, what I like is FMT, so fecal microbiome transplants. And you give someone a bit of poo, and, you know, if they've got C. diff or whatever, in most cases, they're cured within a few hours, uh, you know, after probably having spent months and months and months taking antibiotics. And for the most part, we don't really know why uh, it works. We don't know which microbes are helping or not. And it's a big mystery, but we do know that it's a load of microbes, a load of different species are actually helping out and fixing people very quickly. So we all need a bit of poo in our lives. Okay, what do, do you think? Do, is... do people take a pill on that or? <laughs> uh, days, do that? It's hard. P- people, generally the way it goes in is down a, ch- a tube going down or a tube going up. And uh, it usually involves a blender and uh, a... a Brown soup. Oh, yeah. That's rough. Yeah. And usually the best donor is actually someone in your own household. Interesting. Yeah. You discussed that with your wife. (laughs) One time I did donate my stool and it was, it was not an experience I would do again, probably, but for research internally. And I, and I hope to, to hear more about that sequence one day or, or analyze it myself if I sneak into the files, if they, they probably don't have those open anymore. Sad. 
Well, do you remember Aaron Darling was uh, sequencing every nappy from his uh, his kid for the first few months of life? Yeah, the nap, the diaper ohm. Yeah, got published something. Published well, where did it get published? <laughs> it was just uh, it was just his own little thing. I think he used PGM as well. That's back in the day. Incredible. I didn't know. Okay, so uh, Nabil, how did you get into microbiology, and why do you stay? I wanted to do work with genomics and I wanted to do bioinformatics and my doctoral advisor told me that, well, bacterial genomes are really small, so they should be easier. And I was like, yeah, makes sense to me. So there we are. (laughs) Rational choice. And Lee, what about you? I was I was getting into a new field of bioinformatics and I didn't know what I was doing. And then um, somebody from CDC cold called my lab, told us, and just uh, said, "Hey, you want to work on Gono?" And you're like, "Yeah, okay." Almost, almost. Uh, he said uh, we sequenced four genomes, some of the four, first genome sequenced at CDC on the four five four, and they're Neisseria meningitidis. And your lab has bioinformaticians. Can you analyze this for us? And uh, I was the next PhD student. That's how I got into it. And I, and I stayed because it's so incredibly interesting. Uh, and it, and we have a, a nice impact. Well, how about you, I'm, Andrew? I'm a computer scientist, so I accidentally fell into this area and couldn't escape. <laughs> Why do I stay? Well, now that I've specialized in an area, I can't escape. No, they, you can't. Me yeah, so I was uh, doing limbs development in the Sanger Institute, and then I went into a pathogen genomics team, but doing more infrastructure work, you know, like back-end database, that kind of thing. And then over time, I discovered that, you know, at lunch, we would be having all these conversations about, like, STIs and and these horrible foodborne pathogens. And uh, it was a pretty normal day, you know, to discuss these kind of things. And then I realized, hang on a sec. I've changed fields without realizing it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and I've never looked back. Okay, so what do you think is the biggest misconception about microbiology and what would you like to tell people who think this misconception is true? Lee, do you wear a white lab coat? Ah, that's a good one. No, I have pictures out there wearing a white with me wearing a white lab coat for fun, but... Uh, we do not wear white lab coats as bioinformaticians. Have you ever been photographed in a pristine white lab coat pipetting uh, water or buffer for a photo shoot? Yes. Yes, I have. So have I. But I, would, but I, but I, was, I was an undergrad actually pipetting things. I was actually doing that stuff. But wait a minute. You were, someone did that with you. You are a computer scientist. I, I was photographed. I think I was wearing a green lab coat, actually, which meant I was a danger to everyone else in the lab. And um, so I was pipetting buffer into a used nanopore flow cell just to prove that, you know, I could do the nanopore stuff. I got photographed pipetting for a mini prep. I was doing an actual mini prep for an Iceri meningitis one time. I was doing it. But I don't know. Like, what did they use your photo shoot for? This is still still like you're, you're a computer scientist. <laughs> It, it's to prove, you know, that we we know our stuff, you know. And not okay. nice photos for presentations. 
Interesting. I want to see if Nabil ever had that too. Nope, never. I don't have any of those sort of photos. Hmm. Well, I do have a white lab coat. I think Nabil probably has one as well. I don't think I ordered a new one when we moved to the new building. Uh, what you do is you walk in and you take anyone in your size. <laughs> okay. Put it on enough. your hanger. I've got this a hanger going into the lab. I've made it. <laughs> yeah, it's about time for you to get your picture, Nabil. Yeah, yeah. That's a good misconception. Yeah, I don't think the lab coats we use generally are white. They're usually blue. <laughs> Uh, well, they're graffitied often, and they've been washed many times. Yeah, if they're white, they're definitely like this off, you know, gray. <laughs> yeah, the pristine white ones are for uh, PR purposes. You know, they have a beautiful logo on the side, and they've, they've been worn once, and then they're put back. Never used for real lab work. We use those for, like, when TV crews come in. Okay, here's another one. Have you guys ever analyzed a double helix of DNA rotating on your computer screen? I wish I had that graphic. Like the don't. Matrix? Just like... Or, or like in the Matrix. The, the crazy thing is sometimes, you know, you look at DNA sequences and you will know just from looking at the sequence or from uh, like a GFF file uh, scrolling by, oh yeah, that's what it is, yeah. After a while, you get to know all these things. Agree with that. I think thumbing to, uh, to BAM files, you get a bit of that. Like M pile up, you just kind of watch the the the, the pile up like move over the screen. You're like, mm, yes, yes. Oh, that's contaminated. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. What is my micro moment? To be honest, there have been several, but I think I would like to talk about my most recent one, making mead. I have several friends, both those that are scientists and those that are not, that started making mead, and I have been interested for a while. After all, I am a microbiologist, and I love mead. It seems like something maybe I should give a try. I finally started at the end of last year. I moved to a new state, had a new job, and I was yearning for a new hobby. To be honest, I thought it was more expensive than it ended up being which means the money I saved up could be used for more supplies. I was very slow and meticulous with the first batch I made. As a microbiologist, you know that any little thing can contaminate what you're working with, so you need to be diligent. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can take up an afternoon. I kept opening my book and triple-checking every step, first pitching the yeast, then making the must, and then throwing it all together with some spices. Once put together, it was rather anticlimactic. The gallon jug was sitting on the countertop and I couldn't tell if it had worked or not. I was worried that I might have contaminated the batch at some point during the process and kept my fingers crossed. The next day, I saw bubbles in the airlock, which meant it was working. But as the day progressed, the bubbles increased and I could see the yeast multiplying and moving down the must until the whole jug was engulfed by them. I could smell the faint, slight, sweet and yeasty aroma filling up my kitchen. It was day two that the airlock had bubbles every two seconds, meaning the yeast was hard at work. I was so excited that the next month, whenever I went to the kitchen, I would check to see how fast the gas bubbles were forming. My fiancé was even catching me watching it while drinking my morning coffee. Soon, I was talking about it with everyone I knew and asking advice from my friends that regularly brewed. I must have seemed insufferable, but it's just so satisfying, creating this little yeast feast, this little environment for these little guys. Over the weeks, 
My yeast feast turns into a yeast cemetery with all the little carcasses cascading to the bottom of the bottle. See, I've been in microbiology for almost 10 years now and have never done any work that would end in my personal enjoyment, or should I say consumption. It was either geared towards identifying the microbe or learning something about it. Fermenting has taken the basics that I've learned, such as sterile technique or being very clean, and growing microbes and applying it to a drink. The fun thing is I am still running an experiment, but unlike the lab, smelling, tasting, and touching is not only encouraged, it's expected. When I say I'm a microbiologist, people often think I'm too smart or won't have anything in common to connect over. Some think microbiology is super sophisticated field. Yes, there are complex experiments and equipment, but I feel a big part of it is intuition and problem solving, a thing that is present in everybody's job or hobby. Everyone is a master of something, and your intuition will tell you if something needs to be tweaked or is wrong. The same goes for a lot of microbiology, and I'm still learning to apply this to mead making. But homebrewing is microbiology. It is something many enjoy, and I encourage anyone interested to give it a try. Maybe this could be your favorite micro moment too. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed listening to our guests' micro moments. I wanted to thank everyone that participated in this endeavor and really liked everyone's story. If you would like to check out more about everyone who contributed, you can find them by using the links in our show notes. I highly recommend doing so. Everyone today contributes to microbiology in their own great way. As for us, we can be found on Twitter at Microbigals, of course this podcast, The Micro Moment, and our website, microbigals.com. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S.com. Don't forget that June 27th is World Microbiome Day. So take that day to show microbes a little love, whether it's your own, your garden, or a particular food you like. Remember, we would not be here, let alone healthy, if it wasn't for our microbes. Until next time, everyone. Bye!